0: Hey y'all, welcome back to Gramps Place, the podcast where we discuss everything medical cannabis and everything cannabis law reform. In tonight's episode, we discuss the ever-burning question, medical cannabis. And the question everyone is asking, is the research only anecdotal? We will look at the research. We will look at some of the clinical trials. And we will talk to medical professionals, scientists, and researchers. Brought to you by Something Has to Change. And now, hosted by Chris Grisoglia. Assumption. It's a powerful word, right? It's the king of all ass makers. Teachers and parents have taught us for decades that to assume something only makes an ass out of both you and me. Yet we're all guilty of assuming things every day. This is an in-depth look into the realities and assumptions in regard to the medical benefits of cannabis and the question everyone is asking. Is the medical evidence really only anecdotal? Join us as we outline this topic so that you don't have to assume any longer. We're not going to tell you the answer, but instead give you the tools to make your own educated decision. Let's start off with an older video of mine, which outlines just a small amount of the research we have today. In 1947, there was a medical study done called the Anti-Epileptic Action of Marijuana's Active Substances. Now this was, uh, the study was carried out by Dr. Gene P. Davis, M.D., and Dr. H.H. Ramsey, M.D. Again, this was in 1947, okay? Uh, This clinical trial was a clinical trial of institutionalized patients with epilepsy. The doctors stated when the study was completed that the demonstration of anticonvulsive activity of the tetrahydrocannabinol, THC, by laboratory tests, prompted clinical trials in five institutionalized epileptic children. All of their seizures have been uncontrolled medications that were available in this day and age. These patients in 1947 were treated with extracts of the cannabis plant in lieu of their pharmaceuticals that they had been treated with prior to. Uh, three responded at least as well as previous therapy. The fourth became almost completely and the fifth became entirely seizure-free, again 1947. Uh, Other psychic disturbances or toxic reactions were not manifested during treatment. Uh, Also their blood counts were normal when tested during this treatment. Now in February 2010, researchers at the University of California Center for Medicinal Cannabis Research publicly announced the findings of a series of randomized placebo-controlled clinical trials of inhaled cannabis. Now the studies, which utilize the so-called gold standard FDA clinical trial design, concluded that marijuana ought to be a first-line treatment for patients suffering with neuropathy and many other serious illnesses. Now several of the studies conducted by the center assessed that smoking marijuana was able to alleviate neuropathic pain with, associated with cancer, uh, diabetes, HIV, and many other serious health conditions. Now each of the trials found that cannabis consistently reduced patients' pain levels to a degree that was as good, if not better, than current available medications. Now around the world, similar controlled studies are also taking place. Since 2005, there have been 37 controlled studies assessing the safety and efficacy of marijuana and its naturally occurring compounds in a total of 2,563 patients in various countries around the world. Now, by contrast, many FDA-approved drugs go through far fewer trials involving far fewer subjects. In fact, according to a 2014 review paper published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, The median number of pivotal trials performed prior to FDA drug approval is no more than two, and over one third of newly approved pharmaceutical drugs are brought to market on the basis of only one single pivotal trial. Dr. Guillermo Velasco Dr. Manuel Guzman are two of the top cannabis researchers in the world. They have published numerous studies about how cannabinoids fight glioma, an aggressive form of brain cancer. For example, in 1998 they showed how tetrahydrocannabinol or THC induces apoptosis or cell death in glioma cells. In 2011, they demonstrated how THC and CBD was able to work with chemotherapy in order to kill brain cancer. And in 2014 the Lurie Children's Hospital of Chicago took part in what was believed to be the first clinical trial in the United States of CBD oil extracted from cannabis. Now results from the study showed it cut epileptic seizures by half in the patients within this study. Now, the study at Lurie was a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled study. Dr. Linda Lau, who led the Lurie study, reported that patients had better concentration, sleep, behavior, and some became more verbal while showing better coordination. Now, concern about the long-term health consequences of uh, cannabis on teens has been a topic for anti-cannabis proponents for a very long time. However, research results published by the American Psychological Association in the Journal of Psychology of Addictive Behaviors show no links to physical or mental health issues, including depression, psychotic symptoms, hallucinations, or memory loss in any of the groups studied. Not exactly what we've been led to believe for decades. Now, most of these are more recent, but research on the medicinal properties of cannabis have been taking place around the world for decades. There are literally thousands upon thousands of papers outlining laboratory results. This is the same type of evidence that pharmaceutical companies have when getting approved for clinical trials for a product that they have developed. Why isn't it the same for cannabis? I had the pleasure of talking with Dr. Uma Donoblan about the whole anecdotal evidence versus scientific evidence. And here is what she had to say.
1: I started to get very curious about all of the research. It's probably about in 2009, 2010. And I realized that there was a lot of science. And what was very ironical in my life was I'm also a medical review officer. And, uh... As a physician, I was never, ever, ever taught about the endocannabinoid system. And mm-hmm. that, to me, is the underlying problem today that's been around for 600 million years old is not being taught, first of all. So mm-hmm. that leads to a lot of misinformation or no information. And also, why isn't it being taught? And then you realize that this is not about learning about a digestive system, or a respiratory system, or a reproductive system. It's about a system that's 600 million years old, and Mm -hmm. has been around, and the word cannabinoid has something to do with it. it comes down to the word cannabis, which is the plant. We understand that this plant is probably the oldest agricultural crop. I'm originally from India, and we've known about this plant through the Ayurvedic medicine. And when you start looking at the history of this plant is that this plant was brought to the United States by William O'Shaughnessy, who first learned about this from the Ayurvedic doctors in Calcutta in 1833. And I went back in 2016 to Calcutta and spoke at the Seventh Ayurvedic Conference and explained the system and mm-hmm. so you talk about science and the need for scientific data years ago we knew that if you didn't treat diarrhea you died mm-hmm. call it anecdotal evidence but that's anecdotal evidence right that's what they would consider it if you had diarrhea you died well guess what today you have diarrhea and you don't treat it you're still going to die and that's still evidence to me
2: mm-hmm.
1: and in 2012 I started to write recommendations for cannabis in the state of Washington. Very proud to say that even before I started to write recommendations for cannabis, I hadn't written an opioid now for over a decade. And I'm very proud of the fact that I'm in a state that we do have both medical and I don't like to use the word recreational. I call it adult use program. So both of them uh, are available here in Massachusetts. And I fought very hard for that as well to Mm -hmm. educate the public the lawmakers and for ultimately making it available and i really feel very strongly about that word anecdotal. Mm -hmm. i think this rhetoric it continues the rhetoric that was started with reefer madness and Mm -hmm. we continue to use that and so the evidence the evidence is that nobody in the world has ever died from an overdose from this plant. And you cannot mm-hmm. because of this system known as the endocannabinoid system. So Correct. that's a fact. Mm-hmm. fact yes. is it was prescribed and used as medicine in the United States of America. Mm-hmm. So you could say that it wasn't used as medicine Again, Mm -hmm. it was listed in the United States Pharmacopeia from 1850 to 1942. In 1937 is when Prohibition was placed, but still it took some time before it was removed from the Mm Pharmacopeia. You mentioned epilepsy. They listed it for convulsive disorders. Mm -hmm. They listed it for gout. They Mm -hmm. listed it for pain, neuralgic pain. They listed it for urinary bleeding, menstrual clumps. They also listed it as a treatment, treatment for opioid addiction, the treatment of insanity, not the cause of, but the treatment of. It was used. The other fact that I want people to know, the third fact, is that the government has a patent, patent number 6630507, and that was issued to the government on October 7th, 2003. It clearly states cannabinoids as an antioxidant and neuroprotective. Yes. Yes. And they've known about it and when we say that there's no research, somebody needs to just pull that up and look at all the articles that went into that patent, mm-hmm. the evidence, the scientific evidence that went into the patent being issued to the mm-hmm. United States of America.
0: Dr. Uma currently owns and operates a clinic where she treats patients of all ages with cannabis with all types of conditions. In some cases, in synergy with current medical treatments. I got lucky enough to get an interview with a patient who has successfully used cannabis as her medicine for several years now. Debbie Wilson was a career felony parole and probation officer before being hit by a truck. Afterwards, she suffered severe seizures, among other things, from severe traumatic brain injury. Let's hear about her journey in her own words. Before I was hit by a
3: pickup truck, I was a felony probation and parole officer, and both of my parents worked for the federal government. My dad was the supervising federal probation and parole officer of Tampa, and my mom was a U.S. Marshal. So when you say that your son didn't want to break the law, I will never forget being 57 years old. And being at the end of my road, as far as Western medicine, I had tried and failed on 19 different epilepsy medicines. I'd been evaluated for um, the vagal nerve stimulator twice and not found to be a candidate and turned down by UCLA twice for epilepsy uh, surgery because I wasn't considered a good candidate because I have seizures originating seven parts of my brain. So, that um, I will never forget how hard that decision to purposely break the law was for me. I had no idea it could help epilepsy when I started. My teenagers had told me they would help my post-traumatic headaches and nothing had ever controlled my headaches. Nothing in a million years could have Prepared me, I dropped from uh, 16 grandma seizures a month to four my first year. Um, I mean, it was just like, how could I not know that? How could I be 57 and never heard of such a miracle? I went and did a trial in Ann Arbor, Michigan in 2011. And a 50 50 ratio of THC to CBD controlled my partial complex seizures. So, after a year, for the very first time, I had total seizure control. But Illinois wasn't a, a medical state. And uh, we were faced with the same kind of decisions you were with the exception, someone offered to move us and I I could go. I could relocate. I didn't have a job i I was able I had that that opportunity and uh, I've been seizure free since 20. 20- 13. Uh, in 2014 i had my first normal eeg since 1989 yes and i had my first improved neuropsychological in all my years with severe brain trauma i had never improved And I improved in three out of five areas, this last one. And then two years ago, my medical doctor said, Debbie, we're going to take a diagnosis off your charts. And I said, well, which one? And she said, your diabetes. She said, you have not been high for sugar in three years, and we've been testing you every three months. And I had diabetes for 12 years prior to starting on cannabis. So I get frustrated with the whole anecdotal thing is uh, when you observe me only use cannabis today instead of the 44 pills I was taking nine years ago. um, I guarantee you there's a lot of scientific research in there,
1: you know.
0: So you would say... (laughs) That, that In your opinion, there's a major difference between what the perceptions that lawmakers and the public have of what anecdotal evidence actually
4: is.
3: Absolutely. You know, I, I, um, I have a caregiver and I have a couple of housemates that I help with their health problems. We all just kind of keep an eye on each other. But I was talking to them about it this week and I said, well... You all would notice if I took four big handfuls of medicine a day like I used to, Mm -hmm. you know, that's not my observation. These are the people that live with me and watch it, you know. where At what point does that get to be science? What is observed, you know, because, Mm -hmm. you know, that's really, if I improve on your test, great, but you want to know what? They, have, they stopped giving me those tests in 2014 when I did better on them. Nobody's tested me since in five years. That tells me they don't want to know too much. Yeah. You know, unfortunately, we need change from not just legislatively, but our hospitals, our care, our our, our doctors, our professionals, our caregivers, our nurses – Quit sure. penalizing us. This was a hard journey. This was a hard journey. Don't
0: make me do it alone. Wow. A strong woman. One of thousands I have met over the last few years with similar stories. Debbie works tirelessly for the education of others of the benefits of cannabis as a neurological medicine and advocating for the end of Prohibition. She is truly a remarkable woman. Here's an excerpt from another video produced in 2016. Now in the first study, CBD, a non-psychoactive cannabinoid compound found in cannabis, uh, was found to inhibit proliferation and invasion of U87MG and T98G glioma cells. The study was performed by nine different doctors and scientists together through the Department of Theoretical and Applied Sciences, Biomedical Division, Center of Neuroscience at the University of Insubria, Italy. Now, the second study we found was also completed in 2013, was conducted by 10 doctors and scientists together at the Experimental Medicine School of Pharmacology, University of Camerino, Italy. Uh, which uh, this study states that CBD from cannabis uh, has anti-tumor properties. This study investigated whether CBD uh, could assist another drug, BortZimib, or BORT, in fighting multiple myeloma. Now, although MM patients respond well to BORT uh, at first, most develop a resistance to it over time. Now, the authors of this study looked in myeloma cell lines and patient samples for a protein uh, which would interact with CBD. Now, they found that CBD, both working alone or in concert with BORT, kills myeloma cells. Now, this data suggests that treatment with CBD also helps sidestep the problem of patients developing resistance to BORT as well. Now, a study completed recently in September of 2016 and just published last month by 11 doctors and scientists, again at the University of Camerino, Italy, found that CBD was previously noted in multiple myeloma patients, both alone and in synergy with the protosome inhibitor BORT to induce cell death. Now, in other type of human cancers, the combination of CBD with delta-9-tetrahydrocannabinol, or THC, was found to act act synergistically with other chemotherapeutic drugs, suggesting their use in uh, combination therapies. Now, from this study, uh, we evaluated the effects of THC alone and in combination with CBD in MM cell lines. Now we found that CBD and THC, mainly in combination, were able to reduce cell viability by inducing autophagic dependent necrosis or cell death. Moreover, we showed that the CBD THC combination was able to reduce MM cells migration. Furthermore, the immunoprotosome carfilzomib or CFZ is considered a new target drug in treating MM and is a new promising immunoprotosome inhibitor. Now herein, we also found that the CBD and THC combination is able to reduce expression of the subunit as well as to act in synergy with CFZ to increase MM cell death and inhibits cell migration. In summary, these results prove that this combination of CBD, THC, and CFZ exerts very strong anti-myeloma activities. I asked this question of someone whom I met during my advocacy efforts here in Texas. Anita is a microbiology technologist who works as an infectious disease diagnostician. Let's hear her story. So what is your full background?
2: Okay, so I was in the Air Force for eight and a half years, traveled the world and was able to experience many different cultures firsthand. After that, I wanted to learn just anything I could about science. And I was like, what am I gonna do? Where am I gonna go that I can learn the fundamentals? And I went to Texas Tech and earned my degree in cell and molecular biology with a minor in chemistry. Y Español. (laughs) After that, um, and while I was at Texas Tech, I was working at the veteran outpatient clinic to get started as a phlebotomist. So I've been working with veterans uh, with the clinical process since I even left the military on active duty. So I was doing that, and then after graduation, um, I started to diagnose infectious diseases in the microbiology department. And I've been doing that now for about seven years. My father passed away two two weeks before I graduated from Texas Tech, and my mom passed away 10 months after that. And then I was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis, and it was just like a whirlwind of just a mess. So I had to learn, what can I do? My gene pool obviously is not looking so great because my parents aren't even here. I'm dealing with gastrointestinal issues. Physicians are letting me know that they're going to remove my large intestines. So unfortunately, I was in that vicious cycle of doing the quote unquote right thing through the VA. Um, They started me. They started me on an. IV treatment. For over two years, every four to six weeks, I was basically, it was like chemo, it's Remicade, but you know, I'm sitting in a chair for three hours, and I did that for over two years until my body turned into a human, I was a human strawberry. Rashes all throughout my entire body my body just finally rejected it but this was the right way you know so i'm just listening to what they're telling me to do antibiotics opiates steroids the whole the whole works but through my education i start that's when i started to learn i started to learn hey wait a second here microbiology, microbiome, having a healthy, you know that you're more microorganisms than you are human cells, right? Mm -hmm. So my goal has been since day one, like yours, is education. Mm -hmm. Um, I want people to understand in a fun, memorable, comprehensive way why plant-based medicine should be an option and we should all have access and when you really just put it out there and just make it plain as day plants versus synthetic drugs i mean they really just there really is no comparison and every single thing that's made synthetically is a replica of nature
0: absolutely that's that's the key thing you know Mm-hmm. That, that most people don't realize, and and not to not to change the subject away from the plant-based medicine subject, but being from a scientific background,
2: mm-hmm.
0: I'm curious uh, because what I've found through my advocacy efforts and lobbying efforts is the number one pushback seems to always be the go-to statement of we only have anecdotal evidence. We need to get the scientific evidence. And I think the misconception there, not only with our lawmakers, but with the the public who's still either on the fence or against the idea, is they only know what they were taught in school. Right. Right which is a Webster's Dictionary version of what anecdotal means. But the the point being, the anecdotal evidence that we speak of, that we have in terms of medicinal cannabis, is the exact same anecdotal evidence that pharmaceutical companies go to the FDA to get approval for clinical trials for. It's not this... You know, the misnomer is when you say anecdotal evidence, in my mind, the misnomer is we don't have any science with scientific research. Mm-hmm. What we have is Johnny and Susie in their trailer house making an extract and using it, successful or not. That's anecdotal evidence by the dictionary terminology. You're right. And that's what I think everybody, including lawmakers, are relating the whole subject matter of anecdotal evidence to.
2: Terminology is huge. For Mm -hmm. example, just saying healing, curing, right? Mm -hmm. Certain words that you just don't, you just, you should not say one because everybody responds differently, right? So Mm -hmm. it's just what, but you're 100% correct that The terminology is what's almost, it's making people have a perception that they, because I guarantee you that people don't know the definition. They'd have to look it up after they, like maybe what you just said. I guarantee you just educated so many people just simply by what you just said, because that's not what they're that's not, I guarantee is not their perception. And that's the biggest thing with, with making change and new sense of awareness is having a transparent understanding of what words <laughs> mean and being accurate 100%. Science is facts. Science is the the research, tested, repeated testing, getting the results over and over again. That's where science comes in whenever you're doing research now, when it comes to cannabis, any plant medicine and just human studies, it is difficult when you have variability on both sides, which makes it hard it makes it difficult to do unless you start narrowing it down and having your own your own um, actual testing. But I think what you just highlighted with the definition of anecdotal is the, what people need to understand the most, is that that word doesn't mean what they believe. Sometimes it gets difficult, but I've been on that side. And again, I was doing the right way, right? Yeah. And it was the steroids, the antibiotics, the opiates, so... Uh, it took a. Unfortunately, it took a while for me to get out of that con- that vicious cycle. But cannabis literally saved me. And knock on wood, I haven't been on medicines now for over three years. In fact, I told the VA uh, December of um, was it 2016? I'm not sure. I think it was 2016 that I no longer will be taking. Any medicines, and we can continue to just monitor me, you know, or not monitor me, but the annual visits and stuff like that. And I've been, I've been great.
0: I personally have spent well over I quick counting at three thousand hours just reading scientific reports of studies from from the simple cell cultures just in a laboratory yes to to animal models to even several hundred clinical trials that I've personally read for a world of different things and conditions.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I know when there's fifteen doctors' names on the top below the title of that paper Mm that that is science i mean that that's not anecdotal evidence that's scientific evidence that is yet to be put into practical use
2: absolutely absolutely you're right it's all there and that's the part that just blew my mind the most because when they say there is no evidence That's, that's the part that just breaks my heart because there is evidence it's all over the world. And in Israel, the lot of the, when you mentioned cancer cell lines, my goodness, they've got so many different cancers, like 600 different strains. And what's crazy about it though, like how I was talking about the variability though, is that because of it's a learning, we have literally just touched the tip of the iceberg with with a lot of the newfound technology Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. yeah when they say that there is none that's obviously false we we people not only are showing that but physicians are showing that the research is there um they're synthetically making it and giving it to the government is Synthetically making these compounds and giving them to patients already. So if there's no science or no, why would they do that? Why would they be patents exactly. stating treatments, prophylaxis helps with the following ailments and list ailments? Why would they do that?
0: You know, you touched on uh, something kind of. That's the other aspect to this whole documentary. And uh, that the other side to uh, the whole anecdotal versus scientific evidence question is that uh, the misnomer that we we have to have the evidence here in the United States for it to be fully understood and and admissible, so to speak. Right. And uh, so we're going to point out that uh, some of the things that that were discovered elsewhere, like adrenaline or epinephrine for the treatment of asthma being discovered in Japan. Uh, Aspirin from the bark of a willow tree was discovered in Germany. Yeah. You know, uh, Sir James Black was awarded the Nobel Prize in the U.K. in 1988 for the discovery of beta blockers for for high blood pressure.
4: You know, uh,
0: clinical trials, the thing we talk about we have to have, right? Clinical trials were first developed and exercised in the UK, not the United States. Nuclear medicine, Japan, penicillin, Scotland, smallpox vaccine, UK. Yeah. Uh, you know, surgery. The father of modern modern surgery was from Andalusia.
2: Mm-hmm. You know,
0: the first uh, well, the heart transplant procedure was developed. And the first one performed in South Africa. Wow. I mean. I love this. (laughs) We are not the elite when it comes to medicine. Oh, gosh, no. (laughs) We we need to open our minds to the reality that we not only is it beyond anecdotal, it is scientific. And we need to move forward with clinical trials on what we do have scientific research on. You're correct. We have only cracked the window open where this plant is concerned. Yeah. But we have evidence in oh so many different things.
2: Oh,
0: yeah. Of scientific form Absolutely. to be able to say clinical trial, clinical trial, clinical trial, clinical trial, until we figure out the best way to administer dosage, et cetera. We're right. at that point. Dr. Joe Goldstrich is someone whom I met through a podcast that happened to interview us both. He has some very strong opinions regarding this subject. Uh, tell us a little bit about your background and, and your history in the, on this subject particularly.
5: Well, I, I'm a retired cardiologist, and um, when I got retired, I, I didn't have anything to do, and it was making me crazy. Well, and so, being a long term um, uh, friend of cannabis, I decided to see if I could get a job in cannabis medicine. In 2013, I found an opening in Oakland, California, at a clinic called Medican, and uh, Dr. Jean Talleyrand. Uh, who uh, owned MediCan, uh, had clinics throughout the state, and he said in his in his advertisement for the job that it was the most ethical medical clinics in California. And so I went out there and spent three days with him and sat with him as he interviewed patients to get their card uh, renewed or to get their initial medical card. And I learned a great deal, and I really truly believed it was an ethical operation, so I went to work uh, on January 1st, 2014, and um, that, that year I saw about 3,500 patients uh, who wanted to get their card or get it renewed, and those patients taught me a great deal about medical cannabis. It was just a, an invaluable lesson, and from there I got interested in, in uh, Cannabis being uh, an anti cancer agent. I saw a presentation by Mar Gordon in which she had uh, brain scans of two patients with brain tumors demonstrating that the tumor was shrinking uh, under the influence of cannabis. And that really hooked me. I said, when I saw that, I said, that's what I want to do. So uh, I, st- I asked Mar if she'd teach me what she knew. Because I didn't know anything about cannabis and cancer, I knew about migraine, migraine and seizures, and and pain, and and Crohn's disease, and all that other stuff. But I didn't know anything about cancer, and uh, I, I convinced Mar to teach me, and and um, so in in 2015, I started sitting it sitting in with Mar and listening to her interviews. And then later that year, I started taking over the the interviews for her. And um, so, since I began, I've seen about four thousand patients, and and about four hundred or so have been cancer patients. That's what I've been specializing in. Uh, the past couple of years. That's been my interest, and that's been what I follow the research on. But anyway, that's my background. It's primarily in cancer, and I'm very interested in the research. I, I have a strong background in traditional medicine. I'm board certified in internal medicine, cardiology, clinical lipidology, cholesterol management, and and I, so I'm used to using the research uh, to guide me in my Patient care, and I've carried that forward with my cannabis medicine. I, 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 if something has been demonstrated and not be effective, uh, uh, in the research, I'm probably not going to use it. And if it has been shown to be effective, I'm probably going to try to use it in any way that I can.
0: Well, as you know, uh, this documentary is basically to try to to explain the difference between what the the normal perception or dictionary definition of anecdotal evidence versus scientific research actually is so with, with that point being in mind being a medical doctor yourself uh, you're a well educated person obviously and from an educated standpoint you I'm um, certainly your opinions are well respected so i'm interested to know what your opinions are regarding what the differences there are between those two terms from a public perception's point of view when talking about medical evidence and medical research.
5: Well, you know, anecdotal evidence is valid. It is useful. But it doesn't prove the point. And and that's the difference between uh, a... a, a, uh, a uh, placebo-controlled uh, research study, random study, that, that um, uses statistical analysis to determine the significance of the findings. So, so basically, my 3,500 patients that I saw in, in Oakland uh, were all anecdotal evidence. But that was very instructive. It taught me a lot. So it's important to gather the data and, and have hard evidence for what really works and for what doesn't work, in my opinion. So
0: do you agree that, that because the, the, the anecdotal evidence that we do have is, is useful that there's a misconception when the term is used, both in the political scene as well as the public scene, when we're talking about medical cannabis.
5: Right. What, what I say to people when they tell me, well, it's only anecdotal evidence, I say, yes, that's true, but anecdotal evidence can be very useful, and I tell them my experience, but I say the real problem is not the anecdotal evidence. It's a Schedule One. Uh, status of cannabis—it's a catch-22 situation. It's Schedule One. You can't do the research. You can't do the research. You only have anecdotal evidence. So until we break that catch-22 cycle, we're only going to have anecdotal evidence. We're not going to have what we really need. So, so I I tend to want to put all my emphasis on getting the scheduling changed, that it allows uh, the research that we need. So that's where I put my emphasis. I say we only have anecdotal evidence because of this scheduling uh, uh, absurdity. It really is, you know, it, it, just like the, the firebombing of Dresden, according to Court Vonnegut, was an absurdity. And, and the, the, the scheduling of cannabis in that same light, in the same way, in terms of costing lives, is also an absurdity that we have to to rectify, we have to get rid of.
0: This last interview is of another fellow Texas advocate, and she has a personal story as well. Amanda has become a cannabis educator and the founder of Higher Education Texas, where she teaches people some of the ways cannabinoids can be used therapeutically.
4: My name is Amanda Hughes, and I am a native uh, Dallasite. I am a fifth generation Texas Texan. I am the daughter of law enforcement and a child of the Just Say No era um, drug war in the 80s, the war on drugs. So I came to cannabis um, first as a patient. And then I became an educator, and that is the very short story of uh, my journey. But I have always been a person who was interested in alternative health and other options, and I would choose to treat myself with natural remedies before I would take a prescription. And I um, had a bunch of thyroid issues, and it was causing me uh, some autoimmune Hashimoto's issues and um, lots of migraines and pain and discomfort and fatigue, and um, I wasn't myself. And I figured out that because of some of the cannabinoids, CBD first, and then later I, was, I figured out I needed THC to treat those specific receptors that were on my thyroid. And I began to treat myself with several supplements. But when I added cannabis to the mix, I became healed within about four months. And I have the, uh, my doctor is a fantastic endocrinologist and she knows about my journey and she fully supported me along the way because my blood work was showing that I was getting better. Um, the nodules on my thyroid were shrinking. My, um, thyroid numbers were leveling out and I, I didn't even need the blood work to know that because I felt better. So, um, Uh, I I had to, I had to spread the news. And then I became um, angry at how many patients in Texas feel like their hands are tied because of the laws. And that's when I began um, my advocacy and my activism work. And I, um, I, I'm, I'm really passionate about that because we were robbed, basically. I
0: think Even amongst a large number of those who are for uh, legalization in one form or the other, they still have a question in the back of their mind, and it's the same question or it's more of a statement that the lawmakers say, And, and through your advocacy, I know full well you've heard this statement made by a lawmaker, and that is we only have anecdotal sure. evidence,
3: yeah.
0: right? Yeah. Uh, just from your experience, your, your own personal research, uh, would you say it's more than just anecdotal evidence?
4: I think it's not just more than anecdotal. I think that it's um, centuries old, at the very least. I think it is centuries old. The research is is there, and um, like in the mid 1800s, there it was an enormous amount of research by Dr. Uh, William O'Shaughnessy, mm-hmm. and that research was published. So it's it's there. It's out there. It's published research. I I don't. Um, I, I do think yes, there's a lot of anecdotal, but anecdotal. But the anecdotal is what w- should fuel more research mm-hmm. i yeah um everyone that everyone that you talk to that uses cannabis and has a positive positive um, result from that will tell you the same thing that hey i'm walking proof of it so come research me
0: research me yeah i am talking with some of the doctors that i've talked with and and whatnot it's um it's different for everybody But the irony is, the same thing could be said for most medications. Right. You know, people react differently. Some people have this reaction. Some people have that reaction. Some people have no reaction at all. Some people, medications work for, or some, like my son, they have the exact opposite effect what they're supposed to. Right. You know, so um, it's not anything new. It's not, oh, my God, it's, it's not perfect. You know, well, nothing is. That's
4: the right. sad part about it. The higher the schedule, schedule one being the highest, the higher the schedule, the, the, worst, the, the worst danger there is implied. The a higher level of addiction, the higher level um, of it being unsafe and abused, and yet go down, you know, just add three more schedules to that, to the schedule four, and there's Xanax. People die of overdosing on Xanax. What we know about cannabis, because what we know about the endocannabinoid system, thanks in part to Dr. Raphael Mashulam, is that cannabis is safe. It's safe. So we for sure know that it's safe. So that alone should indicate that we need more research into how it works. Um, mm-hmm. The fact we ha- the fact that we have an endocannabinoid system in our body, eh, then we have endocannabinoids, the fact that we have those indicates that we need more research to see how cannabinoids, phytocannabinoids in a plant are so similar and they work so similarly to our endocannabinoids would indicate that we need more research. It's, um, it, it's, it's astounding to me, the travesty. It's, it's astounding.
0: I'd like to thank y'all for taking the time to listen to this, and I certainly hope this has been helpful and informational enough to help you decide for yourself if we have the medical evidence necessary to move forward with clinical trials. If you agree that we do, then I highly suggest you contact your legislators and let them know how you feel, that it's time to put an end to the prohibition of a plan. Because it really is pretty simple, folks. Something Has to Change And Now Grant's Place Brought to you by Something Has to Change And Now Along with our media partner The Texas Cannabis Collective Where you'll find Anything and everything About Texas and Cannabis